Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Business After Hours. We're now in double digits, I cannot believe it. Um, today's guest was a delight, absolutely inspiring, educational, um, just really, really interesting. Um, so Alexis Powell Howard is the Managing Director of Fortis Therapy. They specialize in mental well-being uh, and support for businesses, individuals, schools, all sorts of different sectors and ages. Um, and we dug into that. We dug into what she does, how it helps people, uh, what are the common uh, things she's seeing now. Obviously, mental health being a, a massive thing that people are talking about. Um, we talked about what it's like just running a business, and she has three of them. Uh, how she manages to find the time to manage three businesses, 24 staff, um, and still manage to come and do a podcast with me. Uh God, it was a good podcast, and I definitely could have spent more than two hours talking to, to this lovely lady. Um, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey, Alexis, thanks for being on the show. Hi, no problem. Long day today? Yes. <laughs> Busy <laughs> 12th, day. Twelfth hour, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, most entrepreneurs go through some kind of 12-hour stint. Yes, it becomes a regular work pattern, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah. For you? Well, sometimes of... when we're really busy, yeah, yeah busy at the minute yeah yeah very busy at the moment good to be busy yeah lovely I love it I absolutely love what I'm doing so it's work but not really you know and we were saying after this you're going to go home and write another proposal <laughs> yes so maybe a 16 hour day yes it might be a longer one today yeah they're, yeah. That, they're tough so you um your your background I mean we kind of met because we've used your amazing services yes, yes. where how did you start in business and yeah. what made you take that leap into the world of running your own company? Um, I think running my own company, well, I, I grew up in a family business, so I was used to, um, you know, being part of a family where we were, we were working together and, um, and that was just part of what we did. So when I got to a point of feeling like I can't, I can't really work in an organization anymore, um, jumping ship really and starting something on my own seemed like it seemed like a natural progression it's still nerve-wracking and obviously because there's no guarantees of anything um but it, it felt like that was the right place for me to be so I mean I think because I'd grown up in that it, it I have probably a different perspective to the people who haven't grown up in that um so so yeah so I started off um Fortis uh you know, started about seven years ago. I was still in the NHS at the time. And um, really, I think has been a culmination of all the things I've ever done, whether it's been therapeutically or uh, being a manager or a leader in an organization, um, you know, lots of different things I've done over the, over the years. So putting all of that into one place uh, felt like the right thing to do. And really, I suppose in the early days, I didn't know that I was going to be doing everything, you know, using every skill I've ever had, but it, that has, that is what's happened. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm using everything all the time. So, yeah. So what, what, how, what were you doing at the NHS before you started? Um, so before, um, before Fortis, I was working for the child and adolescent mental health service, which is CAMS for short. Um, and I worked in uh, Northeast Lincolnshire, uh, as a, as a tier three therapist. So that's working with complex psychological issues um how many tiers are there there's uh, four tiers so the top tier four tier four is uh, being admitted to hospital a mental health unit really 
Um, so we were still, we were, you know, it was kind of quite um, in-depth psychological therapeutic work um, with children and young people, but also with parents and with families. Um, I trained to be a systemic practitioner, which is family therapy, uh, whilst I was in the NHS as well, because I just became fascinated with systems and the way that people work and uh, the way families work and, you know, kind of observing that and working with them is quite complex. So I loved that. From from what sort of age? You, you, I, I'm imagining you like as a like a like a ten year old. Like I really want to understand how families work. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's always been the case. Um, well, to be honest, when I did my training to be a therapist, uh, working with families wasn't something I was remotely interested in. But the more I worked with people, the more it became obvious that actually, especially with children, because they don't have that autonomy for themselves, if you don't work with a family or influence the family in some way children can only go so far on their own so it's important that the adults around them have that um, space to understand what's going on for them so often families and parents will repeat similar patterns that they grew up with you know and things like that so unpicking that with families is really useful yeah because a lot of people I hear on other other podcasts and things they always say that you know they've had some trauma in the past when they're younger it kind of they almost replicate that later down the line is that a mm. is that common yeah it's um it's 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 about your script so as you're growing up um you create your life script so as you're you know you within that you you learn growing up who what your position is within that uh who who are the villains in the story who are the good good, good guys you know what generally happens if you know x y and z happens and we tend to repeat that script um and especially if there's you know attachment difficulties or if there's trauma in the family or or whatever so understanding that and being able to unpick that especially as you become an adult because you actually have choices you are you are autonomous to be able to make different choices about that if you know that there's choices to make sometimes people will say well that's just how I am that's the way it goes I don't I can't change me and that you know if I believed that I wouldn't do what I do for a living because you know that's the whole point so the um the old adage people never change yeah is a load of bollocks yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think so that's good, good you to make know. It, yeah well you make it i think you know you have to want to change yeah um and but we limit ourselves we limit ourselves by the way we think about things the way our, we take our our perceptions of things our perspectives our past experiences our past traumas um and and you know we we are our own worst enemies sometimes and sometimes we get to a point where we might blame others for what they've done to us or how we might be feeling. But in reality, um, yes, absolutely. You know, not to say that people um, haven't had terrible things happen to them because we work with that every day. But you, you have a choice. You actually do have a choice. And, and people don't necessarily, when they're feeling really unwell, don't necessarily feel that they have a choice. You know, this is just how it is. Um, and that's a really depressing place to be. So... The whole point really for me is watching people grow and change and develop through a therapeutic process or through training or whatever it might be we're doing um, and see see that growth, whatever age that person is um, and trusting that process that people can change and do change and we, we you know, we that's what I love about it is actually getting to know people really well, building trust and then seeing what they can actually do and what they're capable of. Does it take people a long time to change their, I guess, behaviour into 
whatever it is they're trying to aspire to be yeah well sometimes it depends on the individual sometimes it can take um you know if people are in the right place for therapy for example um and they are ready to change like you know i need to do something about this their progress is usually quite quick if someone comes in and they're not sure what that would look like or even if they can change then you're starting from a different place um but there's lots of different types of therapy but one of the things that um you know you're working in an integrative way which is the way that i work i use lots of different theories and lots of different ways of working to to fit it for the individual so if you've got somebody who's doing really um you know i don't know their behavior the things that they they actually do really unhelpful for them then understanding why they're doing those things and why they think they need to do those things and their beliefs around that are really important because then you can start to change the beliefs and the thought processes around it if that makes sense so then the behavior changes so i'm if i'm working with somebody who's doing some quite destructive behaviors or even you know if you're working with a young person who's self-harming something like that I'm not focused on that particular behaviour. I'm under, I'm trying to understand the context of the behaviour. So what's that about? So how do you change someone's belief? Because that's fairly ingrained in their psyche. I mm. would have thought they that's they believe. That, I mean, <laughs> yes, this is the only way. Yeah, I guess there's not. Yeah. You can't just shove facts down their no, neck and no. It's it's the relationship that you build up with somebody. So, you know, I can. Um, you know therapists in general we build up a relationship with the person we're working with so that we can get to a point where you know we've got that rapport and that trust the mutuality really to be able to say I'm wondering you know what that might be about or what's that connected to or how can we explore that in a different way or maybe we can think about that in a different way and and often our beliefs are um are they're called interjected messages in our conditioning they're set up by um, the people that we are, we grow up with, you know, so who we're influenced by, whether that's parents, grandparents, teachers, siblings, whatever, we pick those things up. So they become what we think we have to be or what we believe about that situation is something we've been informed about by someone else. Um, unless you know that you've been informed about that by somebody else, you don't know that you can do something different about it. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So once you realise you can change your perspective on that um and other people might not like that that's a lot of the time we try we conform so we conform to what we think other people um want us to be and when you start when when a client starts to change the ripple effect of that is that it can knock onto relationships that relationships will change or some will end you know because that person's changing and developing and they don't fit that anymore yeah so there's always a bit of a potential uh. <laughs> fallout <laughs> in some way or another but it's either that or say stuck where you are um and it's that old adage about you know if you always do what you've always done you always get what you've always got you know? yep yeah what was it I, was it einstein that said the mm. definition of insanity is yeah doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results absolutely i, I love that saying. i do and I, I do you know when i worked in mns years ago an hr manager said that to me and i was like and i hadn't done any training at that point and i was like yeah that's really good yeah <laughs> i like that it's very very logical <laughs> yeah it is easy to understand yeah um i can't i don't know much else about einstein other than that and he, <laughs> no, me he equals mc squared <laughs> yeah. um so you're you set up your business six seven years ago seven years ago yeah yeah and that was out of frustration or different changing yeah well the the, the the nhs well a lot of services at the time were going through an awful lot of changes um so they called it the new world order 
Who did? <laughs> the NHS. <laughs> Which didn't really, I didn't like that. <laughs> um, so they were, you know, this is going to be the new world order. And I was like, oh my God, it sounds like I'm in some kind of dictatorship. What's yeah. that all about? Um, and what I didn't like, I didn't like the way it was moving towards, and I, no, I, I totally appreciate why it needs to move because of funding. Um, but it started to move from, we would see children who needed help and young people to, they've got to fit a pathway, they've got to fit a criteria, you know, and people don't fit a lot of that. I'm not saying that that's not useful sometimes because I think it is, but when a service becomes more rigid in that way, um, then, you know, there's a lot of people who don't fit those pathways or fall between the gaps or can't access a service. And, um, I found it really tough. We were going through a big restructure and, um, you know, the redundancy was on the cards and I, I just felt really compromised. I remember um, I was having therapy at the time and I remember going to my therapist and saying, um, I feel, I just, there's a book, the book Thief. And there's a bit in the book Thief where there's a, the, you know, all the prisoners of war just marching in a direction and they're just falling by the wayside and they just walk over them. And that's what I felt like. And that sounds really dramatic, but it, I feel really passionate about mental health and it felt like I got someone's boot on my head and I couldn't, I couldn't influence it. And that was quite stressful. I, I knew I couldn't influence it, but I did know I had to do something else that I couldn't accept something less than what I was doing. Uh, and I couldn't compromise how I work either. And also we were being asked to measure things um, in a way that's too simplistic. So, you know, if you, you'd ask a child to scale something not to 10, um, and if there hadn't been an improvement in those scores within four sessions, then, you know, I think the comment was, you're not the right therapist. And I thought four hours, four hours, of, if they can manage an hour, unpicking something for somebody and then trying to stick it, stick it into a scale, you know, it doesn't work like that. There's all those other hours in the week where, you know, people are processing what you've talked about and working through things. And um, and so everything just didn't make any sense to me. And I, I got quite frustrated by that. So setting up the business um, was in trialing ideas and, you know, got to a point where I went for, they went through the redundancy process. And um, at the time I was asking for voluntary redundancy because I just wanted to get out and, and the business was starting to get to a point where I actually needed to spend more time on the business. So so you'd set up the business while working? Well, I, the new world order yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was coming. So it was a case of either you set something up and get out or you've got to go and get a job somewhere else. So you, how did you, how did you set up the business while working full time? So I dropped my hours. I had a business partner at the time as well. Um, so I dropped my hours to four days a week. Um, and so I was working on a Friday in a school doing different work and trying to write a service level agreement. And what, what was that all about? Um, so I had to learn how to do that kind of stuff. And then in the evenings I was working with private clients I was doing mediations, I was, you know, delivering training, twilight sessions, anything I could do to try and get um, experience of doing some of this stuff and what works and what doesn't before I actually needed it to sustain me financially. So uh, we, st we started doing that in the August um, and then finally left the NHS at the end of the following June. Um, so I had gone for voluntary redundancy and actually managed um, to get compulsory redundancy in my meeting some, by some fluke. Uh, suddenly I had a flash of inspiration and managed to get, get compulsory redundancy. So they had to let me go. I didn't have to work any longer than, than you know, the terms. So I could get out. Good yeah. decision. Yeah, great decision. Best decision <laughs> ever. 
<laughs> easy to say now. Yeah, and at the time, it's never easy, is it? And, you know, I had people who doubted what I was doing, people who thought, well, you know, why are you, why are you wanting to get out of something where you've got a pension and you've got all these kind of guarantees and regular work, you don't have to worry about it, you finish up past four, what's wrong with you? Um, but if you're not happy, and I wasn't happy, I loved it, don't get me wrong, I absolutely loved the job, but when you go, I think for, and we see this in organisations all the time, when you're going through a process of change and the communication's not good and you're not feeling like you're being, you know, valued or part of a system or a process of change, you disengage from it. Um, and like I say, I knew I couldn't make any difference to it as much as I wanted to. So coming out of it and spreading my wings, which is what it really felt like, and has felt ever since really, um, was the best thing for me, without doubt. So how how uh, how long were you in that bubble of like, oh God, I've just quit my job, <laughs> or got redundancy, and now I've got to make this thing work? Was that a long period of time? Uh, well, I remember meeting with people at the Hive, Business Hive, and I met with Mark Webb, and uh, he said something about you won't see what did he say you won't see the net until you jump <laughs> yeah. oh god really <laughs> that's not helpful <laughs> what was really helpful because I thought just you know I I see clients and I expect them to trust the process that I'm facilitating and actually everything's a process isn't it you know if you don't take a risk with something you don't get the benefits um and I got I've got three children you know we've got a mortgage to pay all that kind of stuff so um oh I, wow you had three kids when you did mm, the job yeah wow that's a very high jump it was a high jump <laughs> and the net you know couldn't see the net for a bit <laughs> for, <laughs> but but I got a bit of redundancy pay and we just cut our cloth accordingly and and you know made that my wages if you like over the next six months so I had six months um and if I hadn't got it where it needed to be in terms of sustaining some kind of payment then I needed to go and get a job yeah yeah and luckily you didn't need to no no never did no and I, I did get uh when I was leaving going through this process as a new world order the um I applied for a job in a school as a they wanted a counselor family therapist and I applied for it got an, and I got an interview and I remember sitting in one of the therapy rooms at CAMS and ringing them and saying thanks for the interview I know it's tomorrow but I'm not gonna come because I'm gonna do something on my own <laughs> <laughs> And then ringing my husband afterwards and going, I turned down that interview. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I mean, that obviously paid off because now you have how many, how big is your team? There's 24 of us, yeah. Wow. Mm. That's bigger than I thought you were. Yeah. <laughs> 24 people. Yeah. Well, how long did it take between, before you hired your first person? Um, well, myself and my business partner at the time, we did everything for a while. Um, and then about, probably about... Um, a year in we got to the point where we had too many contracts for us to cover um and then we took on our first associate and it was a real do we stay where we are um and it's our baby and we just do it the two of us um or do we take somebody on and trust that someone else will um do this in the same way that we would you know because it's it's really hard when you've invested everything into something and then trusting other people to pick it up um and for me I thought, well, if we're going to, I suppose for me, this is like, if I don't do this now and do it well and let myself just go with it, I'm probably not going to get that opportunity again. Uh, so, um, because it is risky and, you know, I have had to have support from my family and, you know, they've got to be on board with this because it's hard work and all the rest of it. Um, so for me, it was like, right, okay, well, let's give it a go and and get someone else in. So we did, we took our first associate on, he took on our, one of our extra contracts and then we, 
you know managed to be able to get them more work and then it grew from there really and then so with the school work um was regular um and is regular now we're in about 45 schools now but the then you've got the private work that's coming in and you know trainings that that comes in you know as and when it needed to and that kind of stuff so then it was about growing the services that we offer as well so the offer got bigger so yeah so how many services do you have now um i've got um i've got three businesses in total um and we have a real variety of different things that we do so the um the therapy side of it um we do in organizations schools private referrals um you know with all ages and all issues um and then we do uh supervision reflective practice we do a lot of training around all sorts of things to do with people really anything to do with people um and then we do uh, mediations uh, and then we do cultural change work as well in organisations, which um, is something that I've been doing for about two or three years, which, um, again, is another extension of all the things I've ever done, but doing it in a way that's helpful for more people. So if we work with people on a one to one, that's brilliant and that's we're helping a lot of people. But if we can influence whole systems to do things in a different way, then we start to help even more people. And that's what it's all about for me It's making sure that people get a really good experience but we're helping as many people as we possibly can so would that be something you'd do with a business like a, a team integrating with another team or how, how can you give me an example of how you've used that for a business and how it would yeah so them? it started off really with um, we did some work for the ymca humber yeah um there's something called psychologically informed environments pie for short thankfully yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and i was asked by them to go in and, and help them to deliver pie um and so we we did over 20 months we um did lots of staff engagement loads of training uh, reflective practice some coaching we did some therapy for people who needed it you know members of staff so we started to shift how things were done um, and we tweaked it we worked collaboratively on it so for me that's a collaboration with the organization that's really important um, and getting people's engagement because what a lot of organizations do from a cultural point of view is that they um, they they've not forced changes on but they they launch something and expect people to engage with it um, and from my experiences of working in other organisations, people get really fatigued with that. Eventually they're like, oh, here we go. Here we go again. It's come back round. And there's a big launch and it lasts six months and then, you know, it falls off by the wayside. And for me, cultural change is about change. <laughs> you don't have to launch anything. You don't even have to tell anybody what you're doing. You just start to do things differently and people will feel the difference. So that's what we do. We go into organisations. We're in chemical processing industry we're doing stuff for homicide police um we're in you know different types of organizations where we can go in and and have those conversations about how do we influence what's happening here so getting engagement from staff and then looking at right well what now we've got that feedback what's the next step now okay now we need to train that group of people or we need to train the leaders because the other thing that we find is that leaders and managers are often promoted because they're really good at what they used to do the job but they're promoted, but then they're actually managing people. They're not doing the job they were doing before. But if you don't have any experience of managing people, people are quite tricky. <laughs> oh, so oh, I see what you mean. See so what I mean? So they they're get good at the job, so they get promoted. They get they're promoted. Not good at managing. Well, they don't know because they've not yeah. had to do it. They've not had any training. You know, a lot of organisations, most organisations promote, but 
what, where's the training to help with leadership and management skills and people skills, having difficult conversations, you know, all that stuff. And if you don't do it well, it causes all sorts of problems. Yeah. Very, very easy to go wrong. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised that happens. I, hmm, hmm. That's worrying. It happens in all sorts of sectors. So how would you help, say, the Homicide Police with a cultural change? Well, at Homicide, what we're doing is we've done, we work for them for probably five years or so doing therapy for officers um, who, um, you know, really need some support. So we've done work for the Police Federation and the Welfare and Benevolent Board. Um, so officers can come and see us through through those channels. But um, we're working on, we've been delivering, uh, kind of, we're calling it uh, Keeping the Peace training so it's about mental health emotional well-being understanding what happens to you when you're feeling under stress you know what's your responsibility in terms of looking after yourself you know what does the organization need to hear from you um understanding strategies techniques all those kinds of things so um and that's the lay we've gone in at doing so we've so far i think trained 150 officers and um i'm going in every week and seeing 50 officers at a time so we do a full day's training with them. So over a course of however many weeks, we'll have seen a lot of people. So just having that conversation, starting the conversation, being able to be honest about, you know, what is stressful and because what what we all do is we all develop coping mechanisms and they're fine to a point. But if you don't unpick what's going on underneath it, you know, those coping mechanisms soon become quite destructive and then people go off sick. And then the cost of the organisation of the absenteeism and everything else has a massive implication. So is trying to educate sounds a bit patronizing but engage people in a process of thinking about themselves because we tend to think about others before we think about ourselves and that's a big sweeping statement but culturally that tends to be what we're taught to do um and looking after yourself and thinking about yourself can be seen to be quite selfish mm. yeah i have this weird thing with people using the term selfish it mm. gets banded around so much yeah. and it's usually pr- pretty incorrect yeah you know, I, I've had people say, oh, how selfish is it for people to take a day off work because they're sick? They should come in and, and it's like, well, no, hold on. Yeah. It's probably yeah. a bit selfish that they come in and do the work and spread the disease to everyone. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, I don't know. I think there's a mixed culture around but the, selfishness. That sickness thing is quite interesting because I think when someone says to me, I haven't had a day off sick for 20 years, I'm like, why haven't you? Yeah. Because you should have done. There's a law of averages. You should have yeah. had some and, time. And off. if you are that healthy, then you need to tell us how you're doing that. <laughs> yeah, you're superhuman. <laughs> yeah, because I really need some of that. So, you know, if you don't take time off when you need to, and, you know, I'm not talking about taking the piss, you know, I'm talking about genuinely need to, then um, we're not robots. We're meant to need a bit of time to recover from things. and, and But we culturally, we're not very good at that we, because of those things, you know, well, why, haven't, why, haven't, why aren't they in? Why haven't they come in? Um, but if you put that into presenteeism, okay, so they're here, but what are they actually achieving? Yeah, I, I literally, I was telling you, I was doing, uh, doing our team reviews today and um, sat down with some of the staff and one of them said to me, I, you know, I, I can come in, but I know I won't be productive. So mm. it is better for you and the company if I take a day off mm. sick, because when I hopefully get better in that 24 hour period, come back tomorrow, I'll actually be present, I'll be working, I'll be productive. Yeah. Um, and you can't argue with that. No. It, it would be illogical to say, well, no, I want to see you sat at the desk, but not really doing any work. Yes, I just need to mm. see you in my building. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I think, And I do think that people, that's what people fall into. It's like, well, at least I've turned where, up. Where do you think that comes from? Um, I think 
it's about work ethic. I think it's about cultural pressures as well. Um, and I get it, you know, I, I mean, you know, I know I grew up in a family business where, um, you know, if you didn't turn up, then you cause a problem for the other members of the family, you know, um, and we would fall into the pattern of if someone hasn't turned up, we've got to cover that. So a 16 hour day in the middle of a summer season wasn't unusual. Um, because if someone hasn't turned up for their evening shift, you're like, right, off we go, got to keep going then. And, you know, I grew up in a family where if you had an operation or something like that, how quickly, how quickly does the anaesthetic wear off? <laughs> and how quickly can you be here? So I get it because I'd grown up in that, you know, I think my, my dad had a, a double hernia operation at one point and, you know, like a gauze put in to, to kind of hold everything back in. And um, I think he was back at work within, I don't know, 10 days, something like that. And, I'm carrying everything, I wasn't that old, but carrying everything for him. And uh, so I'm learning that there's nothing that stops you from working. So I understand when people are saying, no, but I need to come into work or I, you know, I can't take a day off. I get that because I grew up in a, out of necessity really in a similar situation. But um, I think culture and organizations, uh, if people take time off for whatever reason, it, it becomes a bit of an eye roll, you know, like a, what the, you know, well, of course, they've taken some time. They've got a headache. Yeah. You know, what's up with them? All that sarcasm and stuff that we use. Because um, it, you know, I think we, it, I do think as well, people recognise that if they don't turn up, it puts pressure on some other people. And if you're in a team where you care about other people, that makes a difference. But it's also around being realistic. Um, and it fits in with the whole cultural stuff about emails at two in the morning and, you know, all that stuff. If that's what you're expected to work like, taking a day off is like feels almost impossible because what are people going to think yeah um the email things uh I'm, I'm guilty of that yeah um well i am tonight <laughs> yeah i send emails like you know sometimes i send emails late but it's not it's never to um to encourage other people it's just because i you know i've got something on my mind mm. it's i want to get it on you know virtual paper get it sent off and then i can, I yeah. can forget about it but I've read somewhere that that um, that people do look at the timestamps of when the emails are received, yeah. and that it will create some kind of culture where people yeah. are like, oh, I, maybe I'm expected to get on this, or they may be checking their emails. I mean, most people have them on their phone, yeah. so almost ping instantly. You've got a new message, they'll read it, then they're worrying about it until the next day. And um, so, someone said what they do is essentially write things down in virtual notes, mm. ready to send in the morning. Mm. So it's not, it's it's off my brain. Yeah. It's on paper. Yeah. But it's not sent. So that person doesn't, you know, there's no chance of them getting it. Yeah. At 11 at night. No. And no one's going to do anything about it at 11 at night. Or if it's something they need to think about, they're going to think about <coughs> it and that's going to affect their sleep. So, yeah. I mean, I do, um, I have, I mean, notes and things written all over the place, typed into my phone and I write emails and put them into draft, you know, and just so it's not in my head. I I can't sleep if I if something's going on in my head I have mm. to get it down so uh writing it down is probably the best route mm. physically with yeah, a pen it is. but then I have to then digitally type it up anyway so I'm just like this I hate inefficiencies like, right that's a waste <laughs> so, so that's wasting my time doubling I just up. put it straight in uh, I use Evernote so I'm using Evernote to kind of make the notes from from our podcast and yeah. all the past ones and it's great syncs to my phone my laptop yeah. you know all sorts of stuff so i can kind of be anywhere at any point and just be like right i'm gonna add a note it's yeah. there for however long i need it um 
And that's worked quite well. It's almost replaced my note. I used to carry a notebook with me everywhere. Yeah, little I do. red notebook with a pen. Um, people used to go, "What's what's your notebook for? What are you writing down?" It's just like whatever is in my head <laughs> that I need say, to get rid of. It's the contents of my head. Nobody needs to read that. Yeah, it will make no sense <laughs> yeah. to anyone else. My handwriting's shocking as well. But now it's all in Evernote, and you can also categorize them as well, which is really cool. And, I, and I've got a couple of businesses, so I categorize them by those. And yeah. you know, I've got one for podcasting and. That for me has been a massive help because mm. if I'm lying awake, I'm just like, right, I'm just going to get yeah, this out. Get it done. Thoughts are down. I can just then kind of forget about it. The thing with that is, and it, it, when I do some of my trainings, I talk about sleep and the impact of that screen. And we, we're kind of moving away from actually, like you say, physically writing something down. But there is something therapeutic about physically writing something down because you're, you are going through that process of, of being involved in it that way. Uh, also you're not looking at that light so which stimulates your brain so um i think a big thing that i will say to people is you know about their phones and charge them somewhere else and all that kind of stuff because it's too tempting you know addiction is rife with mobile phones mine's about (laughs) 10 inches from my head (laughs) every night very close yeah so you know um but having that written down having the uh the things in your head written down because and it doesn't matter whether it's something that you need to act on or if it's just something that um is just going around in your head. Yeah, it might not be something you actually need to do anything with, but you just need to get it out of your head. And I, I always talk about it being like a bit like a, you take the cork out, and then it, that something comes up to the top, and something else. And before you know it, you're writing the most ridiculous things that you know you can't think, can't even believe you're writing those things down. Where's that come from? But you're emptying your head. Yeah. And then your head can just kind of go right. Okay, that's fine. It's, it's saved somewhere. I, uh, I saw. Maybe two years ago, I uh, read a book called uh, Miracle Morning. Mm. Um, and one of the, th- it kind of has this system for how to wake up and have a really productive morning. And it you know, starts off with affirmations and visualization and stuff like that. And one of them is, is journaling. Mm. So just oh, write down. Yeah. Uh, on a p- so I, I started a journal and it's been very sporadic. I've had periods of like six months where I've not written anything in it. And all of a sudden I'll just come back to it. Mm. Um, but I, I handwrite that. And sometimes, yeah, I'll just start writing, you know, usually it's when I've had a bad day. Yeah. I go and journal something. Um, and it is weird where your brain will go yeah. and just go, oh, yeah, this happened and that happened. Oh, I've been thinking about this. and But it's it does, it is kind of therapeutic getting it on paper. Mm. My my uh, paranoia then sets in like, oh, God, I'll just put this on paper. It's now a <laughs> yes. thing and someone could... <laughs> someone actually could read yeah. this. <laughs> so... Yeah. Luckily, my wife isn't that bothered, and uh, <laughs> my my uh, one and a half year old obviously can't read yeah. it, so I'm safe at the minute. A few years, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's a weird thing that whole getting thoughts out of your brain yeah. helps somehow. It does, it really does, and um, even if you write down a commitment to yourself, you know, you tend to follow through on it, even if you don't look at it again. You know, when I did my training, journaling was one of the things that we had to do as part of an assessment. And, um, and we have a, a CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy Diploma that we do and we make journaling part of their assessment because, you know, you've got to be, if as somebody who does what I do, if you can't do it yourself, then how can you ask someone else to do it? And if you struggle with it, then understanding why you're struggling with it so you can understand maybe why someone else might struggle with it is really important. You might be a bit more creative and find other ways of doing it. But getting out of what is in your head, um, you know, we don't, tend to do that we tend to hold an awful lot in our heads 
and things like our phones and you know the 24 hours a day and we aren't designed to be 24 hours a day but we try to be so if you if you have stuff going around in your head um and you don't do anything with it where does it go it, you know it it's there isn't it and it becomes something else and you dream about things that you think where the hell's that come from or you you know oh, the connections that you make in i know your head, when subconscious my, yeah oh, i know when i've i've got something going on in my head because i have the strangest dreams yeah so i yeah yeah. My, my wife's just like your dreams make no sense it's so weird <laughs> it's so random but yeah. yeah i guess it's the brain trying to fathom it out comprehend what's yeah, going on your subconscious on. is trying to fathom out what is you know what's this all about and um and that's why when we're, we're under a lot of stress or pressure or whatever our sleep is usually probably one of the mo- the first things to go in some way or another yeah i think sleepless nights is is the common thing when people are worried mm. or anxious about something mm. um so other than writing stuff down, is there mm. any other techniques or tips you'd give people to cope with worry? Yeah, there's loads. There's loads, there's loads people can do. I think um, something that we forget about is being creative. Um, you know, mindfulness coloring books kind of hit the market a few years ago and I was like, I'm coloring in. And you're like, right, okay, that's great. But what, in a, what other ways are you creative? You know, I do a um, kind of... Um, in some of the trainings I do, I do a kind of assessment, if you like, of self-assessment for people about where are they at with things. And creativity is one of the things that we don't tend to engage with anymore to the same way as we used to. Even in schools, you know, from kind of key stage two, really, there's not that much creativity on the curriculum. So so do you mean like painting, drawing? Yeah, anything. It could be anything. I was talking to a police officer yesterday and he said... Um, do you mean drawing? I said, no, I mean, what do you do that's creative? Well, I garden. I love gardening. I love creating something from nothing and watching it grow and looking after it. And well, that's creativity, you know, and envisaging something and working towards it and expressing yourself in that way. It could be how you dress. It could be. So when people are, people are stressed, the, the, the brain stops functioning um, in the way that it normally does. And um, we get caught up in thinking so we go through and ruminate and, you know, we have negative automatic thoughts and things just kind of seem to get worse, but we don't give ourselves a break from it. So doing something that's therapeutic for ourselves, creativity or talking to somebody, even if it's a friend, you know, just being able to do something which shifts it. If we don't do anything, it just stays where it, we stay where we are um, and the situation gradually gets worse. So anything that people can do, whether that's, you know, we simple stuff in terms of, exercise or drinking plenty of water those things are a given now we know that those really help you know people talk about exercise being the you know the the best antidepressant anti-anxiety drug and it you know it's free you can just go for a walk um we've got terms like green therapy for being outside and terms for blue therapy about being near water you know we don't need titles for these things these are things about being grounded and getting back to what's important we get we we forget to become grounded we float we can start to go off in on tangents in our heads and and physically and stop to look stop looking after ourselves stop thinking about what we need and um and it's that bit really about it's individual to each of us different things will work for each of us and what what's yours you know what's your strategy if you like and how do you put that in place yeah I, i'm trying to i now you've said that i'm trying to wrap my brains about the last time i was creative and i can't think what it was mm. so i used to play instruments i used to draw i used to do and God, when do I have time as a business owner? Yeah. That's the hard thing. But I need <laughs> to factor it in somehow. I need to make yeah. I need to figure something out because um, 
I think you're right. It is a good stress reliever. I um, one of the only times I ever uh, could switch off, mm. um, not think about work, just just completely being in the zone mm. was surfing. Yeah. First couple of times I did it, there's literally nothing else you can focus on because no. if you do, <laughs> you're gonna, gonna you're gonna drown. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was uh, that was kind of really therapeutic. Obviously, being in the water yeah. and nature was fantastic. But um, yeah, just the you know it's exercise as well. Mm. That was really good. I enjoyed that. Um, we've done a few other team bonding events and things. They're mm. they're always good. But yeah, being creative that's something I think I'm gonna have to work on myself. And I think when we you know when we're, our brain is stressed, we um, we, you know your thinking stops so when you actually need to be able to think creatively or come up with a solution to something or whatever it's really difficult because you can't access those parts of the brain as readily why is that um because your um your amygdala so the part of your brain that is your fear response um is overreacting so the other parts of your brain where you can make logical decisions and you can draw from experiences and all that kind of stuff you can't access it so we suddenly become just reactive whereas when you actually put some factor in time to unplug and you know be creative and take some time out you i don't know how about about you but i know if i got if i'm on holiday i was away last week for a few days uh, with my family was we're right near a river we're walking the dog every three times a day you know we're off kind of walking around durham and whatever we're doing and a couple of days of that and I'm and I, my head's kind of going we could do this we could do that the business <laughs> could be here could be that you know but, but when I you need to be able to actually factor time in where you connect with what's important and then your brain starts to work properly again and then you start to kind of get those ideas and creativity just comes naturally because you know it's half of what we're made of so yeah part of me hates going on holiday because that <laughs> happens it's like you I want to switch this off yeah you <laughs> Well, the, the, yeah, I think Elon Musk was saying, uh, you know, he, he can't switch it off. There's nothing he can do. No. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying I'm Musk level, but if <laughs> I go on holiday and I try and unwind, it, yeah, all sorts of creative ideas start popping up and you think, oh, just shut up. <laughs> you can just, where's the off switch? Yeah, sometimes. I, th- I think that's un- entrepreneurial though. I think, I mean, I, uh, years ago, going back to the kind of journaling, I suppose it's along the same lines that, um, my husband and I would go on holiday and uh, and I'd kind of like, you know, switch off for the first few days and I'm like, okay, stuff's kind of happening. And so I would then do what I called a holiday list. So a holiday list would be the things I want to do in the, before the next before next year. Um, you know, it might be stuff I want to study or it might be things I want to kind of uh, trial or look at or whatever. And I would write it um, on a holiday and then put it away and not think about it. And then invariably, you know, about a year later, it would turn up, tidying a drawer up or something like that. And I'd done it all. And I'd not reviewed it and not gone back to it, but I'd done it all. And I did enrolled, you know, I did my, I enrolled on my master's from a holiday list. Um, And it's literally just emptying out all those things that I want to be able to do, which gives you that future idea, you know, which you maybe don't, you're planning it, strategizing in a business, but what do you want as a person and where do you want to be? Those, um... Those lists, I don't know if they've got a different name, future plan list, something. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the Action Coach events uh, yes. that we went to, yes, which you won an award at, yes, I did. Well Thank done, you. yes. Um, they get at the end of the event get you to write a, mm. a list. Mm. Of, well, not a list; it's, letter. A, it's a letter to mm. yourself. Um, and they, you know, they kind of don't give you too much guidance. It's not too structured, but it's normally a case of write a Think letter big. to yourself you're going to receive this time next year so you've got 12 months mm. what are you going to achieve 
what are your plans and I've been to a couple of events and done them and obviously got them back and read them and I've got a couple pinned up and there's one that I was reading the other day just you know I, I don't read them all the time so maybe every couple of months and I was just reading it going oh I've done that mm. I've done that I've done that now there's one thing on it I've not done it mm. really bugs me now <laughs> irritated uh, it's so annoying um <laughs> But yeah, it is strange because in one of the letters I wrote to myself, I said that I was going to be married Mm. and have a child. And at that point in my life, I was kind of not really, they were just very, very far back in my brain. They weren't like plans. It was just like, oh, I think in 12 months that might happen. And and yeah, within 12 months, both those things. That happened. So in therapeutic terms, you call that your edge of awareness. So your edge of awareness, there's something going on with that. And yeah. it's just starting to come into your your awareness. It's not even anywhere near your line of sight, but it's just on the edges. Um, and I think when you write that down, you, you're somewhere subconsciously making a commitment to yourself. Or And I do, you know, we, you know, you, you, we influence our own destinies, don't we? We don't necessarily know that we do or we don't believe that we do sometimes. But when you've done something like that, an exercise like that, and you look at it and go, bloody hell, that, that came to fruition... And I didn't, that's why these holiday lists were the things I started with where, you know, I, these are things I really want to do. There was nothing on there that I didn't, um, I wasn't committed to or didn't feel that I could achieve, but there were all things that were aspirational as well. Not just in terms of me, but family and where I want my children to be. And, you know, it's, the, the, it's got longer the more children I've had. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's putting stuff out there. I'm a massive believer in putting stuff out there into the you know into the ether of the universe or whatever you want to say and um and it comes back uh, or it happens or or whatever and and before you know it you're you're on that path so you do that do you do the same thing with business goals yeah so my my business goals um it's quite funny because at that event we were you were just mentioning um my husband was there as well so I was kind of writing my letter and I'm like you know world domination you know this kind of and uh and my husband had written his goals and he said, uh, look at these. And I was like, yeah, they're, they're really good. And he went, they're really, they're, you know, aspirational, aren't they? And I was like, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't show you my letter. Because <laughs> um, I just think if you don't, if you don't think big or put it out there, then, you know, and, and, and people, if people don't want to, that's absolutely fine, you know. But I think it's just being, just see what's possible. Why not? Well, I think the, the setting goals thing, it's... Um it does take practice. It sounds mm. stupid mm. writing goals down. It sounds like well, you don't need. Mm. I'm sure you don't need to practice that. Mm. But actually, that's the it's the mindset thing. Yeah. Um, and again, I think if it's um, if you come from a past where you've always been kind of you know don't be too ambitious, don't don't set yeah. audacious goals. Um, you will look at things and go, oh no, no that that's too big. I'll, I'll scale it back. Yeah. Um, be cautious it was i think it was kind of how i was raised you know be humble don't be a brag Mm. don't 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 try and aim for things above your station Mm. just slowly slowly catch your monkey it was like that was how i used to set goals and then um some coaching sessions just kind of said well you know what would happen if you doubled it yeah you know, could in theory, what could you do? And there's other people out there who, you know, that there's the 10x rule, and he's basically like, whatever goal you set, 10x it, and yeah. figure out how to do it later. I think you can set sometimes goals that are just unrealistic, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, in two months I'm going to be the richest man on the planet. Yes, <laughs> that would be very. It was hard. that easy. <laughs> yeah, 
but i think definitely setting goals that push mm. probably a little bit to the point where you're like you're scared of the goal yeah they're there i think a good mi- middle ground i think it focus i think it focuses you and if you're doing them for personal or you're doing them for um you know for the business or whatever um you know if you set a really um an audacious goal um and you get three quarters of the way there that's probably better than a more humble goal that you would have set where you might have reached it but it's only a quarter of what you were trying to set out to so you're always striving mm. and i think i'm very much like that i'm always stri- striving for it to be better or or help more people or what whatever it is that we're trying to do um and so you know that that means that you i've got to be open to things being a bit scary because it is scary running your own business is actually quite scary it can be very yes. scary um <laughs> yeah so what's what's the goal then for fortis um i am for it to be the gold standard in mental health services and well-being services nationally nationally and uh, i'd like Globally? it to be internationally yeah wow. but nationally definitely so you weren't joking with world domination no <laughs> no i'm not that's a great goal yeah. How how do you measure it? How are you have you broken that down into how um, you're going to do that? Well, we we always have our um you know our we do our three month planning and we always got our goals and things. So for me, if I look at where we've come to in seven years and now I've kind of I'm working more on the business than I am in the business, so that makes a massive difference. Um, and kind of making sure that everything we do is the best quality the quality of the stuff is really important to me and that just comes from my own past experiences um so i know what impact it has if the quality of what we do when we're dealing with people isn't up to scratch so if the quality is there and we make sure that we've always got the systems and processes and structures in place then the growth um and the quality will will be with the growth um so that's really always the main priority and the main goal and then we trial things all the time to see what works and what doesn't and you know kind of looking at more online stuff and things like that that we can maybe do in the future which you know isn't my comfort zone at all but it doesn't mean to say that's not something that we can't flourish in it's just learning about it and and moving through it so so the gold standard thing for me is the main thing wherever that is whether it's regional national international that's the main thing main focus a great goal <laughs> thank you how what's the time window have you given yourself um, a... no i haven't i have um i mean if you look at where we are seven years in um and we're working we are already working all over the country um we've got a presence regionally now that's really good and solid um and it's just building on what we're learning all the time so you know i could say well in five years i want to be at this place but um it depends what things fall in your way you know so if you i think if you, sometimes you can put um, a number of years on it and it limits you because things could happen a lot faster mm. uh, and it just depends on what opportunities come up i just say yes to everything <laughs> <laughs> say yes and then we'll figure the it branson out. method it is absolutely yeah that's why i say like yes it. work it out later <laughs> yeah. say yeah. yes with confidence and then go and figure it out yeah I, I to be honest i think that's most business people mm. that's kind of how that happens yeah. Just kind of say yes somewhere, and it, uh, oh, now I've got a business. I don't know how that happened. Yeah. But it's how my my father kind of started like that. I started a family business, and he mm. he fell into doing websites essentially, mm. and um, it became a business kind of by accident. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah. 
uh, when you now look at where we are and all yeah. that came from basically a, a funny accident. <laughs> um, a good, a happy accident. Yeah, sometimes it, it works out really well. Um, so I'm just coming back to, you You have 24 staff. Mm. How do you manage 24 people? Um, well, I'm just looking at my structure at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and was it, how long have you had 24 people? Is that? Oh, that's just grown gradually over the yeah. time, yeah. So we moved into um, the HQ building that we've got a couple of years ago. There was, I don't know, 13 of us, something like that. So it's just grown quite a lot. But that's also because we've grown in other areas. So I needed people, I've needed people to be able to do more varied things. So therapy, you know, having a therapist who can do therapy is brilliant. Having a therapist who can deliver training not all therapists feel comfortable doing that so then it's about growing people you know and I challenge people um so I um it was quite funny when I did my TEDx last December there was a kind of uh, sofa discussion you know all the panel all the speakers were discussing and a lot of my team were in the audience and uh, and I said you know I feel like I've got a duty to kind of stretch people and see what the see see what their potential is and help them to get there and they were all just laughing. <laughs> really? Yeah, because they were like, yeah, doesn't she ever? <laughs> um, so you're a bit of a boundary pusher. And- I'm just kind of, yeah, well, I, you know, if people have got, like I said earlier, we limit ourselves, don't we? So if I can see that someone can do something, I, I don't do it to the point where they're, they're panicking, but I do put people in the stretch zone and in a say, right, I think you can, and I'll help with them. I'll help them to do it. Um so the, the variety of the people we've now got, so an H, I've got an HR specialist who's working with me because we're doing a lot in, more in organisations and I can I can uh, do that because I've had a lot of managerial and leadership experience in other sectors previous to being a therapist. So I bring all of that to it, whereas not not every therapist has got that experience or wants to do that work. So it's, com- you know, it's trying to get people to kind of um, fit the bill and... Uh, who've got those skills but also work in a similar way quite intuitively and passionate and you know all that kind of stuff so I've got um, some really good people really good people working with me did you find it hard recruiting for your sort of business it's hard in our area especially working with children Um, I mean I'm doing an awful lot of work with adults um, but specifically to have people therapists who work with children and young people um, because geographically where we are uh, that's that's quite tricky. So I've actually got therapists who live in, uh, I've got one who lives in Nottingham, I've got some who live in Doncaster, um, you know, some in Hull. Um, so we can cover those different geographical areas. But there's the, the the wider that net kind of, I cast that net, the more variety I get. So, you know, drama therapists, art therapists, um, you know, anybody. Drama therapists. Drama therapists, yeah. I've got one on placement with me at the minute. So what do they do? How do they... Um, provide therapy right so it's a really creative way of it's working like miming and <laughs> yeah do a lot of role play people love it <laughs> charades yeah if we're gonna do drama oh god i'm leaving yeah. um it's uh it's really a create really creative way of working so it can be um using all sorts of different methods really so it sounds quite scary i think people kind of go oh god what are you gonna make me do and that kind of comes back to school you know i don't want to act stand up and yeah. front of the class now talk about it um but it isn't like that it's very much about building up the relationship with somebody finding a creative way for them to express what's happened you know sometimes when we've had difficult things happen to us we don't have a language for it um especially if things have happened pre-verbally to people so they know how they feel or they have horrible feelings but they don't really know 
how to put that into words and words are quite limiting uh i went through that fairly recently with mm. something i just couldn't explain to my wife yeah the feelings i had around something that happened i just i couldn't really describe it and she just she found it hard to understand yeah um and even now i can't really verbalize it no but i think sometimes verbalizing it minimizes what you're trying to say yeah do you know what i mean yeah there, there isn't always words yeah that, that fit so creative working you know and that could be using objects could be acting something out using objects it could be a story that you write it could be a letter that you write to somebody it could be um even physically we use um, a, a, a technique called the two chair technique so um if you for example have got someone that you want to have a conversation with uh but having that conversation becomes really difficult you can you it's, it's called the two chair technique or the empty chair technique um so someone can sit in a chair as themselves and talk to the other chair to the person they want to talk to just recently with, with an adult uh, client a woman and she wanted to talk to her dad about something um and then she would sit in the other chair and be her dad and respond and then go back into the other chair so you're experimenting or you can do it in parts of self so you know this part of me thinks this but this part of me thinks that and you move you physically move so there's lots of ways of helping people to think about these things in a different way which are creative and um tap into all those different ways that we communicate um and if we use lots of creative artistic ways of doing that then we actually pick up far more about the reality of how that person's feeling than we ever would by just by having a conversation so there's massively a place for talking therapy but there's also massively a place for these other different ways of working that just help people to express what's happened or what they're thinking or how they're feeling yeah i'm trying to imagine this going on and you're, you're <laughs> just sat there watching going okay i'm trying to pick this apart and understand where they're coming from and do you try and is it normally a case you're trying to understand the underlying issue or how do you if you watch someone have that conversation mm. with an empty chair mm. what is the next step how do you then say okay from what you've done i think this or is it just a case of you work on it together so okay um so you, i might observe something that i've noticed body language tells you a lot as well so i might observe something i've noticed or i might um explore what was going on when when you said that or how did you feel or what was happening physically and um it's about exploration um i the thing with therapy is you're and this is sometimes where things like cognitive behavioral therapy for me fall a bit short in that you're not the expert the person is the expert they're their expert they just don't know it so i'm trying to facilitate them finding that confidence to be able to express that they know themselves and that's the whole therapeutic process really is that they know <coughs> excuse me know themselves well enough um but also can make changes and feel that they've got that sense of agency to be able to do that as well yeah. so if i take that control and that power away from them in the conversation that we have i might be fitting in with that dictatorial way that they might have been brought up or you know um they're looking for me to say what's wrong or diagnose something or you know kind of but i'm just i'm just kind of wondering and thinking being curious you know tr not making assumptions that's one of the worst things you can do is assume that oh i get that you understand why they said that or what that's about because who says you do how do you know that yeah it's quite arrogant so you know being curious is a really good way of approaching it so you you've got lots of really good leading questions i, bet. <laughs> I do open questioning I do, and I, but i i use a lot of my intuition 
So, um, and I think that's something that's quite difficult to teach people, you know, so that's why picking the right people is really important. You've got to have some kind of natural aptitude for working with people. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I'm always looking, if you imagine having, um, like a load of helium balloons and the strings tank, I'm trying to kind of connect some of those strings together so I can kind of get an idea of where this has come from, what this is about. And then I can show the client and check it out and see if that's right. And then if it is right, then we can explore it a bit further and what else is connected to that and how can we help them to move through it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just imagining you recruiting your own staff. <laughs> it must have been a nightmare for them because you, you said you're looking at body language, you've got leading questions. They must have had a real tough time trying to, <laughs> trying to hide like, things from you. Yeah, like what was that about? I, You know, there has to be a point where I switch some of that off. Yeah. You know, I, I want people to work with me who are as passionate as me who care about what they're doing as much as I do and and I don't mean that in an arrogant way I just mean that it, you know um if someone doesn't engage or understand what I'm trying to do then force isn't the right place for them and I've got some amazing people who really do get it um but we you know when you're interviewing people or you're having a conversation with people one of the things I do is just approach that in a really relaxed way I don't have formal set of questions I don't I just go with my instincts and that I think having worked in organizations where you've got a very formal interview process and a a grading process and you know all that kind of stuff and did they get the right score at the end and can we tweak the score to make sure the other person gets it you know all that stuff that goes on in organizations um I don't do that I just let's just be people and have a conversation and see see what works and what doesn't and you know and if if this is right for you and if you're right for us so they don't get like a rubber stamp certificate. <laughs> You're a sane An person. Award. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> what's the what's the most common problem you find with business owners or employees that come and see you at the minute? Uh, what in terms of the cultural stuff or just in general? Just is- issues. Um, I'm always conscious that at the minute there's a lot about mental health. There's mental mm. health week recently. Mm. Um, a lot of um, a lot of articles and videos going out on social media talking about. Mental health awareness, starting to look out for people who are depressed, have anxiety, mm. suffering with stress, all these sorts of things. And I'm just interested to see from a, you know, that's all, I think a lot of it's clickbait. I think yeah. a lot of stuff is um, overly dramatized. And it's just interesting to see whether or not you're seeing that at the other end, people coming to you with, yeah. has there been an increase in this? Do you know, there's been, aware? I think there's been, it's definitely a shift in terms of people feeling that they can, not generally, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say that there's been a massive shift in people kind of saying, oh, no, I can talk about it, which I think we're told that there is. I think I think there is a shift. The stigma is definitely moving. Um, I'm not sure that we always approach it in the right way as a, as an, as a society or the media um, because we want a quick fix. Organisations want a quick fix. And this doesn't have one, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Um, and there's things that come out that I really kind of think, oh, well, you know, it's like a let's do this. This will be, um, you know, a cost effective option that will mean that we've ticked a box. I think, well, don't tick the box. Do it so actually it has an impact. If it has an impact, then it'll affect your bottom line anyway in a positive way. So things like mental health first aid, um, which is something that is last last year, uh, I went to the NEC um, Health and Wellbeing at Work conference as a delegate 
and it was being pushed all over it was you know everyone's talking about it and I'm and I'm kind of quite cynical and I'm thinking okay so I've done this for a long time many years and I've had lots of years of training still things catch me out you know still things where I'm sat with someone I think god right okay I need to think about what I'm going to do or how I'm going to help this person so giving someone a couple of days training and then making them a first aider mental health first aider without any supervision or any reflective practice or any support network doesn't make sense to me just doesn't make sense to me so everyone's talking about it and thinking oh this is amazing you know and I'm like right okay well keep an open mind you know there might be some really good stuff they're doing um this year I'm at the same conference and people are, there's been some research uh, published that questions the effectiveness and whether or not it actually does what it's supposed to do and people are talking about it being quite negative about it and I think it's taken a year for people to actually go hang on a minute this isn't the magic pill there isn't a magic pill no. so you know that kind of stuff really frustrates me because I think people try and find a quick win because it's cost effective it's cheaper it's a mental first aid mental health first aid yeah so it's like a so uh, hold on I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> unsure I'm sure I know what yeah what what so I get a first aider right yeah so physical so physical first aid you know somebody we've always had in organizations is a person that you call um yeah. and so mental health first aid um is a is an organization that um does this training for organizations where um you can put someone on a I think it's either a two-day or a four-day training and they come out the other end as a mental health first aider so if you've got someone in your organization who's really struggling then that person is the person that they go to and they're supposed to signpost that's actually what they're supposed to do but in reality we um, I talk a lot to health and safety managers and things because it's starting to come under their remit because of health and um in reality what happens in some organizations is that those people kind of are the champions of mental health so people go to them with quite serious concerns and worries maybe suicidal thoughts or you know feeling quite desperate and they how can they have had anything like enough training to know what to do about that or even how to manage themselves within that you know it's it's a it's a it's tricky stuff um and so what happens is organizations pay for the training and it's you know um and then you know set these people up now i'm not saying that the training isn't is a waste of time i'm not saying that those things aren't important because they are but it's also about being realistic and by calling someone a first aider it suggests that they are the person who runs in to save the day or know what they're going to do um and that's i think that's quite unfair to to set somebody up like that i think it's bonkers Mm. i mean you you can you literally are putting a band-aid on stuff if you're a first aider you're you're almost solving immediate problems that aren't gonna well, they're not going to last very long because no. it's either going to go badly wrong and it's not going to be able to last or yeah. you're going to get someone with, you know, you're gonna, um, a first res- a proper first responder yeah. like lives or, um, you know, ambulance is going to turn up and they're going to yeah. take it on and do a professional job. But yeah. a mental first aider. Yeah. Yeah. God, what a... I know. Who, who thought that up? I know. <laughs> I suppose in theory, if it's more like a, a sign, some, someone you can go and talk to but then don't they just become a bit of a whistleblower? Well, this is the thing, because I was talking to um, a health and safety manager recently and he said that their mental health first aider um, had come to him and said, this person's talking to me about all sorts of things and I have told me that I can't tell anybody, so yeah. I haven't got permission to share it. And it but was... It's kind of like, now you've catch 22, you're yeah. stuck. And now, you've, now this person yeah. was holding on to all of that, taking it home, can't switch off. So you... 
that's what I mean in terms if like for someone like me in my profession we have supervision every month you 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 step into therapy if you need it to keep yourself well um you know you put mechanisms in around yourself so that we can continue to keep doing the work we do and help people yeah because you can't keep yourself well indefinitely when you're taking on other people's stuff you've got to learn how to do that but if you've only had a few hours training and someone's talking to you about their dark darkest thoughts and they're saying you can't talk to anyone about that. That for me just creates a massive amount of risk. So, so when it look and it's the same when it comes to mental health services. You know, we put cuts in place and um, we 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 kind of try and make it fit into a twelve week program, or we put people in a group, or we do. You just get a revolving door. There's a revolving door. People then end up having to come back because they haven't actually. Um, got to the bottom of what the problem is or you know they haven't been able to explore it adequately enough or they haven't been given the time to and I appreciate there's a cost to that and that's what it's all about it always comes down to the money side of it but actually if you worked out the cost of that revolving door or staff going off sick or whatever it might be you've got massive cost implications anyway so you might as well invest that positively in something to help your staff yeah um that long-term cost Mm. yeah it's um it can be worked out. I mean, we've used your services. Mm. Some of your team have been amazing helping out some of our, our team. So um, it definitely works. I think, I mean, how, how many businesses do you see proactively coming to you for help for them and their teams? There's more, it's happening more just yeah. because I think we're more visible. We're becoming more visible. Yeah. Um, so, but it's an investment. So we have a lot of conversations with people about doing it. Um, and then it's about actually they might not use us right now but they might come back to us in a year and say actually yeah we need to do something about this the difficulty we've got is that um, you've got systems like employee assistance programs which businesses can buy into at a really cheap rate that I can't compete with because I don't want to do it on the phone I don't want to I don't mind we do a lot of video Skype sessions and things like that because we can physically see what someone's doing and how they're presenting but um you oh, know so that's interesting you so you're actually using like remote technology yeah, to do it yeah okay yeah because that that is better it's better than it's better than the phone i hate phone cancelling i'm like i'm rubbish <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i can't see you i can't see what you're doing i can't you know i'm losing a lot of your communication uh, so we don't do it that way but there are systems out there which businesses can buy into which mean they've ticked a box because it's there uh, and it is helpful for staff. I'm not saying it isn't, but often they don't know what the utilisation is, how many people are ringing up, if they are using it. Sometimes picking up the phone and talking to a stranger is quite a difficult thing to do when you're feeling really low. Um, and if you've got to go through an assessment conversation first, you know, there's all these barriers we put in place and actually people just want to rock up, talk to somebody, figure it out, get back to life. Um, and that, that for me is what it's all about. Yeah, well, I think that's that's it. People want to get get going then yeah. I think a lot of people are impatient and even mm. through therapy I know I know um I know if I was doing it, I'd be like right so am I fixed yet <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah surely that's can you it. tell me I'm done <laughs> yeah so I'm now I'm now okay mm. um so d- is there a common theme you see from businesses that what they send your way um yeah or stress stress yeah yeah stress um relationship breakdowns um if there's been losses in the family you know that people are trying to kind of come to terms with because i think we have an expectation that we should be getting better and feeling much better about this things much quicker than actually we can we've got a process to go through grieving and that takes time um 
it can be um you know it could be behavior that people are seeing that is demonstrating that someone's struggling so they, they'll send us they'll send them to us to to kind of talk about it um it can be you know someone's had a disclosure about something and it's affected them so then they come and talk to us um it can be accidents at work you know there's all sorts of things and often when you start to explore and have the conversations there's usually something else that maybe the workplace hasn't been aware of or you know there's an underlying experience or something that's never really been spoken about or acknowledged and and we you know we kind of unpick that as well um so it's really individual everybody who rings us whether it's a business whether it's an individual whether it's about a family member or whatever everything's different it's always different Uh, and that's what i love about it because it's that individuality of people but um we then have to work in a way that fits each of those individuals you know there's not one size fits all so i guess you um you can't talk about therapy you're providing employees or other people to the business no, no so how do you provide good customer service to the business yeah if it's something you can't really talk about well it depends on what we're doing for the business so um say for example we're doing the therapeutics work the stuff i was going to say therapeutic stuff yeah. it's really <laughs> professional technical term um no we can't we can't feedback but what we generally find is that the businesses are seeing the improvement and the person probably hasn't gone off sick so um it works good for us the routine of coming to work and you know the structure and the identity it gives us and everything else is important so if somebody can stay at work whilst they're going through that process it can generally be quite useful um and what we find is that we get feedback like you you know when we were at the awards dinner the other night and you came over and said you know thank you for the work you've done that that's massive for us because we know what we're seeing in the therapy room but we don't know how that's being translated outside of it yeah. so if we know for the people of talked about it they found it really helpful and that's like that's the job satisfaction bit that we get um if we're doing the cultural work um then i will talk to people if you do engagement sessions with staff we don't i never feedback who said what because the whole point is really is about having the trust and people knowing that it's confidential but they also know that i am going to feedback themes so general themes that have come out of conversations and the kind of research that I've done in those conversations. So then that gets fed back because it's about that honesty of the pic- the overall picture. So we're always really clear about the boundaries. So I don't know, say for example, some of the work we do for the police, um, we'll give some feedback um, or, you know, because fund- it's being funded, um, but we let the client let us know what we can feed back. So they'll see or they'll have been spoken to about what we're going to feedback. So they're in. So there's nothing hidden. It's all about informed consent. And if you don't want us to say that, we won't. Um, because it's about them having the best experience they can. Um, and that's that work. That seems to work. Yeah. So what you mentioned there about the cultural work you do. Mm. So how, so how would you work with a business on cultural improvement? Because I'm a massive fan of culture. Yeah. Um, I think it is the single most important thing if you have a team Mm. um you've got to nail that and Mm. culture means a lot of things to different people i did a talk recently where i told people i what i originally thought culture was which (laughs) i was so so off the mark i used to think it was all the perks and benefits yeah um and then i've now realized what it actually means and Mm. how one how do you work and understand the culture for a business you've not been a part of well, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, because you walk in and you're yeah. like, okay, yeah. tell me about your culture. 
Um, I mean, unless you spend like what a couple of months there, you're not going to be able to really get it. No, and and that isn't. It's not realistic. So what what I what I do is um, I talk to the leadership about what what they think is going on, uh, and so they'll tell me an overall picture of what's happening. Um, they might say some of the sticking points they've got, some of the issues they've got, some of the people difficulties they might have, and just have a really honest conversation about that. And then I say, let me talk to your staff and let me hear what they've got to say. Because it's often... And leave the room. And then, yes, yeah. you need to go now. No. <laughs> so I, I'll meet with people, well, either, depending on the size of the organisation, either meet with the next tier of management middle below, or uh, we might um, s- select a number of people across the organisation, say different roles, different levels, different, you know, so that I can get a sense of what's going on in, in each kind of area. Uh, have those one-to-one conversations with people and um, and and explore um, what their perspective is and what they think is done well, what they think could be done better. What, <coughs> excuse me, what's their role in that? Um, and and then I collate all of that and then I uh, feed it back to the management and say, right, well, this is what you know. We had this conversation about this. And this is what your team is saying. Um, and you know, then we have a discussion, and I do it in a positive way. So this is what you're doing really well. This is what the opportunities are for the future. Um, you know, these are the aspirations that people are talking about, and you know, the results that you know that, that are coming out. Um, and invariably, as we're talking through that, through people will start to go, well, "Hang on a minute, I can't believe they think that. That didn't happen. That happened five years ago." Or um, you know, things that people get hung up about that are really important to them that management don't even maybe even know about but that communication it hasn't been there for whatever reasons it breaks down over a period of time and we you know we tend to do uh you know it's not the way we do things around here so you know don't even attempt it um so I've always been a nightmare for that I go but yeah but why <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of use that um so then we feed back and then have that conversation really honest conversations about okay so this is what's being spoken about what do you want your culture to look like? What are the stories that you've had? What are people buying into that isn't helpful? And, um, you know, what can we do differently? And that's why I say we don't launch anything. It's just, right, okay, so then we put some training in that's uh, particular to what they need with the particular people. Um, and then we review that and then we do the next bit and then we put maybe some coaching in and then uh, we put maybe some training in for the next layer and then we put some coaching in for them. And so before you know it, I had a conversation recently in, a, in a, the chemical plant that I'm doing some work in and um, the site manager said, um, you know this cultural change thing, this shift? I said, yeah. <clears throat> he said, when's it going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> I said, you'll know. When's it going to happen? Yeah, when, well, you'll know. Date and time. Yeah, I said, you'll know. I said, it's like turning a tanker. You, it, it takes time, but you'll know. And then about two months later, I was in there doing some coaching and um, he said, uh, hey, the shift is happening. I said, is it? He said, yeah. You can feel it. I said, okay, how do you know? He said, because people are talking to each other in different ways. We've smashed the production record. We've smashed our um, safety record. We've smashed our cost to quality record. People are on board and people are working together. And a year ago, that wasn't happening. So, because I, I, I kept saying to me, how are you going to measure it? So you'll know. You'll know because people will respond differently. So that's the bit about the collaborative solution and the talking it through and being honest with each other about that didn't work very well let's try this or I think so-and-so could do there's, there's an issue there we could do some mediation over there or so-and-so struggling let's put some individual coaching in for them or let's put some therapy in for that person so all those places that 
it gets stuck you know whatever it is whether it's the culture whether it's the communication whether it's people's perceptions of things we, we we're shifting all that out the way so we're clearing the path with all of those things and then people start to engage with what's going on so then the next layer starts to say well hang on a minute why aren't we talking to anybody and that's what you want you want people to be asking about what's happening here we can you know we all won something last week for great production it what happened yeah. <laughs> that never used to happen you know so it's a gradual thing but it it's again trusting the process trusting that people don't people don't want to be unhappy that's good to hear <laughs> i think um god you give me a lot to think about that um <laughs> I drink that, my coffee while you're having that. That cultural, yeah, that, that cultural <laughs> shift thing. Uh, I've seen that happen um, in both ways, where you kind of, it, yeah, just something. Just it, the feeling mm. is different. Mm. Um, it's almost like an atmosphere. You can sense something. You can't really you can't put your measure on it, it very. But, yeah, yeah, it's that. It's that. It's that human factor that you know therapy really fits into that. Where people say, okay, so how are you proving what your outcomes are? Right, well, you know, people are going through a process and they're managing much better better in life and they look different and they carry themselves differently and their family lives are much better. And um, But how do you put that in a pie chart? Yeah. How do you put That'll that in hard. a graph? Yeah, but organisations are the same. There's certain things you can measure. So you can measure absenteeism, you can measure disciplinary rates, your grievances, you know, all that stuff. That'll give you a picture of those things. Reducing means people are engaging better and they're feeling probably happier in the workplace. There's less incidences of those things. Mm. But when it comes to a cultural shift, it is a feeling. We're talking about a feeling of people wanting to be there, wanting to engage, wanting to work together, working for the greater good, you know, all working towards the same goal. Now, I'm not being naive. There's always going to be people who pull in another direction or maybe don't fit. Um, and that's really difficult because if someone doesn't fit and it's not right, then what do you do? You know, do you keep them in the organization and coach them and get them where they need to be? Or do you actually say, actually, this isn't right for you. You're not right for us. Um, and those are those difficult conversations to have but it is a feeling that people start to kind of just shift people are shifting and that means everything else starts to shift your people are your biggest resource if they're not happy and they're not engaged you know it doesn't matter what you're producing yeah very true yeah i think from from any level as well mm. i think sometimes people think that cultural uh, shifts or changes it needs to be it's always management it's always leadership it's always the top end and mm. I think that's dangerous because it's usually it should be sh well it should be everybody but mm. the you know even the interns mm. should be on board with the culture um, it's got to be led yes there's a, there's a really good image um that I use and it's of Gordon Brown um excuse me on Gov Govan Shipyard and um, I saw it in another person's talk, actually, and I just swiped it. Um, but everybody else is wearing the PPE, the, you know, the personal protection equipment, and he isn't wearing a hard hat or anything. And you think, what? what? If you aren't prepared to do it and live it, then don't expect everybody else to do it. So it has to come from, it has to be led from the top, but that has to be consistent you know, you've got to be committed to it. There's no point in doing something for six weeks and hoping that everyone else is going to carry it on because they won't. Because unless you're doing it, they're not going to do it. Do you find that's a common thing with entrepreneurs where they set up the business and the culture, but they're not maybe in the same bubble as everyone else? Yeah, I think I think we're a strange <laughs> breed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a bad habit sometimes of putting things in place and then not following my own process. Yeah, and, and it's that, 
when I worked at M&S, we would, they would say, you know, about motivation. And, um, and I see that a lot that we're motivated. It's about m- being motivated to a point, but then you've got to continue that motivation. You've got to commit to stuff. Um, and, you know, I suppose for somebody like me, I'm not, uh, I've got people around me who are incredibly good at detail, automatically very good at detail. I've had to train myself to be very good at detail because it isn't my natural, I, I want to kind of do the, yeah, let's do this, let's what this will look like, and then somebody else come in and do that. But when you're working on your own at the very beginning, you haven't got anybody else to come in and do that. So I, I've trained myself to kind of focus on all of those things because I have to. Whereas if you were looking at it from an organizational perspective, you'd say, well, if that's not your strength, you that's something that you were weaker at, you would tend to put somebody else in that who whose strength that is, and then you focus on what your strengths are. But you haven't got that. Mm. When you're an entrepreneur, you haven't got that person because you're t- figuring it out for yourself. So, you know, it's, it, it, I think organizationally, and I've seen this, you know, um, I've worked in higher education, I've worked in, uh, you know, M&S, retail, um, NHS, that what happens is we people put things in place and then and it's you know the emperor's new clothes and then that management team moves on or that leader changes or whatever and it's not embedded so it doesn't then happen it has to be embedded and that's why these processes need to be slow and paced and thought about because if you want to embed something it needs to be just this is what we do here you know you're putting something positive in that this is what we do here and that does take time. How do you feel about written processes, systems f- to help with culture? Yeah, uh, I think they're imperative. I think things need to be clear. Um, I think it's about having processes and systems in place, but not making them so rigid that people can't be creative within them. Yeah. Because people, if they don't know what to do, they will follow that to the letter. And then you get some rigid- rigidity. Um, so you need them, absolutely. We're talking about hours all the time at Fortis, like, okay, well, we need a system in place for that. We need a flow chart for that. People need to know what's happening with this um, because it's important that as we grow, it's those those are solid. But I also want is people to say, I've had an idea about something. What do you think about this? And the way we're doing that, can we, that doesn't quite work at that point. Can we, can we alter it? Can we review it? So it's movable and it's fluid. Whereas I think, Sometimes you can set something and you go, well, that's just, that's how it is. That's the process. But um, if you can't encourage people to kind of influence that in any way, then it becomes your way or the highway. Do you know what I mean? And that's not helpful. Can you remember when we were at the event and Clive Woodward did that talk about um, uh, teamship? Yes, we have some. (laughs) What did you think to that that concept? Um, I really liked it. Uh, It was right up my street. But I think... And we had, we've got two or three teamship rules because we're going to do them gradually um, around stuff that just irritates the hell out of everybody, you know, just little things. Like what? Just like wash your cups up. Oh, that is a big <laughs> one. That Put is, them away. Oh, I had to get everyone in the kitchen <laughs> one time. Like, right, guys, yeah. what are we going to do about this yes. mess? It's, oh, tea. No tea one's cups. taking responsibility. So yep. it's one of the, t- the teamship rule about that was okay, we're going to discuss this. We're like, I can't believe it. Yeah, okay, we are discussing it. So I want you to think about. What, exactly what he said think about what it is that you, we need to do about it so I didn't say anything else and the the upshot was that you need to wash your cup up and then someone said okay so then it's on the draining board then what 
right, okay, so then we actually need to dry it. We need to put it back on the shelf. That's what we need to do. If you've had a client and they've had a coffee, you need to wash the cup up. And we put that in place and it worked. And then the other one we did was around, we have a sign that we put on the doors to say, don't come in, you know, private session, a confidential session or whatever. Um, and I'm crap at putting it on the door because I'm so into kind of what's happening with the client that I'm like, yeah, shut the door, carry you know, sit down. And then I see the sign and I think, oh, shit, that should be on the door. Um, so the, the teamship rule around that was that you put the sign on the door when you're walking with your client and then take it off the door because that was the other thing, people leaving the signs on the door so we didn't know if people were in the rooms or not, even though they had only booked the room for the time they were using it. You don't want to walk in or knock or listen or anything like that. Um, so you take it off the door and you put it on the sofa in the room. So everyone who walks in kind of goes, oh yeah, I need to put that on the door because it's in your line of sight. That's the next one they came up with. These were just little things, but actually operationally, things like that have a big impact on clients uh, and on room availability. So the knock-on impact of those things, although they sound silly, um, was causing us issues and they're not causing us issues anymore. So I really liked his idea around teamship rules. I think getting everyone to kind of collaborate is my style anyway and getting us to agree on, okay, so what are we all committing to? And what was really funny was the next day after we'd had this conversation, somebody came in and um, hadn't taken their sign off the therapy door and I didn't say anything. Uh, I just sat at my desk and uh, they came in and somebody else said, oi, (laughs) (laughs) your sign's still on. Oh, shit, I know. I remembered last night when I got home. But they, so it became something that was self-managed. Yeah. So just trialing it with a couple of things like that worked really well. Yeah, we, we kind of did it with the teacups. It was and Maybe I got involved a bit too much. <laughs> you got to step back. I was like, you need to wash your box. But, <laughs> you became um, the parent, that's what happened. Yeah, <laughs> I need to get better at that. But uh, one of my colleagues, uh, John, was with me and, and I kind of said to him, we need to put these in place and I'm, I'm not going to be involved. I'm just going to, I'll vet them. Hmm. Um, I think he, he yes, was he quite clear don't just yeah. put anything and if you don't place. agree with it don't allow it yeah. yeah but the whole idea of let them come up with the rules mm. set the boundaries or the criteria for what the objective is um, what the issue might be and then let them come up with the rules mm. so we I instantly was starting to think of lots of things where we should be doing that and I think some of them would be the whole team some mm. of them might be just departments mm. um, but yeah something I, I I wanted to sit down with a bit of time. Yeah, it always, takes time. Always trying to find the time, but yeah. sit down, really plan out and say, right, these are the ones that we're going to... I think um, I think he said try and do one a week, something like that. You get 50 in a year. That was a, that was a yeah. good target. So I need to try and figure out right, what are those 50 and start with easy things because yeah, I think a lot of the team might be like, hold on, mm. we get to create some rules. Yeah. Uh, so I think maybe just start with the easy stuff. I think it's also about it coming from them. That's mm. what I was like. Okay, so what do we need to do? What is it that you actually think we need to put some rules in about? It's buy-in. If, mm. if, you, if you're kind of invested in the solution, well, you know, suggest the solution yeah. and you don't follow it yourself, it, yeah. it's way worse than just being dictated to and say, well, yeah. this is what I think you should do. Because we yeah. actually, um, so we went through, uh, when you launch a website, there's quite a lot of things you've got to do. So we had a pre-launch checklist, post-launch checklist, mm. and they, were f- they weren't they were that in-depth, but certain things were being missed. So one developer might do it, another developer might forget. Yeah. Another developer might just be like, oh, I just didn't know that was how you did things mm. here. So we were like, right, we're going to list everything out. It became, went from like a one-page document to like a f- four or five. Yeah. And the, there was this feedback of, 
God, it's a bit condescending, you know, we know how to do our job. And I was like, okay, so how would you do it differently? Mm. And then you just kind of let them stir and go, okay, how would I make sure that everybody else does it in the same way I would do it? Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably use a checklist. <laughs> yeah, probably then, do that. And then so on, they, once they kind of bought into it, then yeah. they kind of get on the bandwagon and say, okay, I'm going to add to the checklist because I've, I've thought of this idea and this thing we should be doing. And that's helped. That that really has helped to be consistent. But um, initially, yeah, people were like, oh, mm. this is a, you know, it's like a tick box exercise. It's a bit boring, a bit bland. But, but I think as well, when you've got new people coming into the organization, they know then what your expectations are and what you as a team have realized works and as long as it's as like I said earlier as long as someone can say mm, I mean we, when we had a conversation as a group and uh, we were talking about our referral process how effective is it in schools particularly because schools are busy places and they want to kind of get children to see us but we need a referral form and we need some kind of uh, we have not some kind of we have a consent form that especially for primary age children that parents need to sign secondary we don't need the same consent but some schools feel much better if they have got that um so how how consistent is that and well this school doesn't do it at all this one i just end up seeing them you know okay so actually as a team we need to agree that these are the minimum requirements for us to see someone because otherwise we are actually not covered in that we're seeing someone without having that consent even they might have got it verbally if you haven't got it signed then you're wide open so having those conversations about the processes that we have in place and you can assume make an assumption that those things are happening all the time but I know what's going I've worked in schools for years I know what happens Uh, and I know they're doing things with the best of intentions nothing has been done nothing's done maliciously it's just busy Mm -hmm. Um, and so being able to have conversations about those things and say right okay well actually then in our process we need to say these these are non-negotiables this is negotiable that isn't so you know you can be flexible with this bit because it depends on whether you're in a pupil referral unit where you've got a lot of different difficult um behavioral challenging children uh or you're in a primary or a secondary it might be slightly different but you know it's i think having those conversations about what's working well and like you say pushing it back and saying okay so what does it need to look like then you know is really important because then they get that sense of um ownership and when sir clive woodward was talking i I mean he was i think it was three or four hours or something um i was just like writing copious notes of all these things i was thinking bloody hell yeah we could do this we could do that and and what was interesting when i i talked about teamship rules in a presentation that i did uh, and i said that i'd been to this thing and heard him speak and it was right at the end of something i was doing around boundaries and um for a particular group of people and uh, and the immediate response was that won't work in our team and I said, okay, so why? What stop? What was stop that from working? Um, we've got people who just wouldn't engage and who wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't put themselves in a position to actually make any changes because there's this kind of resistance and avoidance and all this stuff going on. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting because, you know, I don't, I don't. I mean, that was quite a big organisation where that that comment was made, and I thought you know for me when I was hearing about it I was like how can I implement this what are going to be the barriers to implementing it and what can we do about it and how quickly can we do it and what time do we need to take over it and kind of that more can do thinking as opposed to a can't do it immediately it was like a no that won't work yeah and I think that that probably won't work because it's that cultural thing yeah, they've just it is. literally closed it off mm. yeah it's a shame I think so there's a lot of 
Was that a public sector? Yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of crazy stuff going on in public <laughs> sector. And they're, you know, they're, you constantly hear about all these problems. And you're like, yeah. wow, no wonder why no. they've got some crazy stuff that they're, yeah. they're not doing in most cases. Um, God, I hate going into hospital. Yeah. The million things I see where I'm like, God, I yeah. could really see how private privatization of hospitals might work because mm. the stuff that goes on at the minute, it's just... Mm. And there's a lot of acting out behaviour. People in those in those places. I mean, they do some amazing work, but there's also almost acceptable blocking behaviours yeah. yeah. that just become part of what they part of that culture. And, and as a patient, you feel, you can feel that you know things just falling off the edge of a cliff. You know what what's happening with that, or where's that referral gone, or whatever. Um, and it's just it becomes that that behaviour becomes acceptable. Have you read the book by, um, oh, I forget the name of the guy, something Syed? Um, and he wrote a, a book about the differences between, and it's essentially culture, between mm. the aviation industry and the medical industry. Right. And how in the aviation industry, everything's reported. Anything that goes wrong, mm. they share the news with everybody. If, if um, you know, a stewardess spots something that a pilot has or hasn't done, they've got the, the cultural backing in that industry to say, oh, stop, mm. something's wrong, something's in danger. But in the medical, mm. it's very different. You know, nurses don't feel like they can speak out against doctors if, you know, and so people have had, people have died in theatre because the, the doctor's done something mm. and the nurse said, well, yeah, I did see that he, um, he nicked the artery or something, but I, he was the doctor, so I didn't say anything. Yeah. And it's this cultural awareness, uh, and, and also um, obviously because uh, like just um, because people like to sue when things go wrong. Yeah. Negligence is never normally something that's openly said. Yeah, we did something wrong. It went wrong because of this, mm. but we're going to put this thing in place to stop it. And it's yeah. it's really it's really yeah. worrying. A hierarchical structure. Um, when I was in the NHS, I remember. Um, we had this um, meeting, team meeting, was it? And there's a psychiatrist, and we worked quite close with psychiatrists. Um, and it was a new psychiatrist, and he said something in the meeting, and I reacted uh, quite assertively. <laughs> I wouldn't say aggressively, but it was assertive um, about that because I disagreed. Um, and I immediately, because I don't see it, because I don't see that, it doesn't. I, I, you know function in my head in that way so I just kind of said what I thought and afterwards people were like I can't believe you just said that to a psychiatrist to a consultant I'm like what do you mean why wouldn't he was I didn't think he was right in what he was saying and we, he and I had to have a conversation afterwards about you know he was very he was very um open to what I was saying actually and we had a really good conversation a great working relationship after that but you know he'd made assumptions and he'd kind of come in with this kind of all-knowing and I was like no actually that's not accurate that's not true um, but in those organisations, that hierarchical structure, it, it there's a it's a safety in one way because you've got somebody who's actually trained to the to the point of being able to make those decisions and know their stuff. But there's also huge barriers in in managing situations that are un you know unfurling or or kind of unraveling in front of your very eyes. And I know myself, you know, I've, my children have been in hospital probably more than they should have been <laughs> different things and I remember with my uh, my oldest son he fell off his bike and really damaged his shoulder he broke his broke his arm and dislocated his um, shoulder joint Ouch. yeah and um, he was only six and we were in um, the hospital and and I was saying they were saying no no we think he's okay we're going to send him home and I said you're not 
you are not sending him home. That is some, I can, I, even I can see there's something not right there. That shoulder isn't in the right place. And, and it turned out that the arm was completely broken and the shoulder, the, the actual ball joint itself was just disconnected. Um, and so, and I'd had this kind of conversation with the consultants and then the, the, the matron or whoever's in charge of the ward said, oh, you're the mum. You're the mum who won't go home. <laughs> like, yes, because I want to stay here, all right. Um, and I kind of had that almost toe-to-toe with these people. And it, the next day they came and apologised because I, I was right. But it was only because I've got that confidence to be saying, actually, just because of the position you're in doesn't mean to say that I always trust your judgment. Um, but And in my head, I think because I've worked in the NHS, I know you've got to be your own case coordinator. You know, you've got to take that position, especially for your children or whatever. Um, but a lot of people can't do that because they see that hierarchical structure as that, mm. you know, as it being quite daunting as well. Yeah. So the whole thing feeds through all the way through, right down to the people using the services. Yeah, it's dangerous. I, I'm I'm not a big fan of that. Um, there definitely needs to be hierarchy, but shutting people down because mm. of a position that they're in when you know there's clearly things they see is just well in in the case of the nhs dangerous but um in business i guess Mm. well dangerous as well because you you know you i always say to my team you know if you if you spot something and we're not doing someone in the teams reacted in a certain way or not done something professionally then you need to speak up because we could lose the client the contract could you know be something that gets you know snowballs so um so they're all very aware you know we can speak up if i do something they can come to me and say i don't think that was right mm. or how about you know we change this so i think that kind of open culture really I, uh, does yeah help. it does and i think and i love that i love it when someone goes i don't think you did that the best way we you know you could have done you it love that when they yeah, say that to you. Go, but why are you doing it like that i don't know <laughs> it's not like a good idea at the time <laughs> um but that's the, that's that open kind of communication isn't it and being able to kind of say you know like you say challenge just it doesn't have to be critical it's just challenging Mm-hmm. and that's where the, that kind of growth comes from I think so what type of culture do you have in your businesses um well very collaborative um I, I um, asked recently we were doing all the award applications and things and I asked for some feedback and just kind of put four kind of open questions out to the to the guys about what they think um and the feedback was well just blew me away really um you know people talking about feeling valued and engaged and heard and collaborated with and um you know being a fortis being a we rather than an i and you know all that kind of stuff and i think you know i i like that stretch that gives me of having people who are challenging me but also i like stretching them in what they can do and you know people who haven't done things before suddenly fly at something that they didn't know they could do um and it's uh you know that communication and I can you know there's always stuff going on for people and I can I can see when someone's starting to kind of disengage or I can feel them moving out of the business like I I kind of know that's happening and and I know things come to an end as well you know if people want to go and do something else or they want to leave or whatever I feel like that's a natural progression um and it's doing that hopefully in the best way that we can um but people there's a lot of people who are working with me been with me for a, a long time um it's really just making it positive and um, also proactive, but developing and changing all the time. One of the one of the comments was, um, "I just can't keep up." <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, maybe that's not so good. <laughs> but yeah. 
So how the hell do you run three businesses? Um, it's it's uh, it's hard work. Uh, I think it's a lot of a lot, a lot of thinking about you know what's it going to be like and where we're we heading and how we're we going to strategize that and plan it. Um, I have great Claire who works with me is my um, operation head of operations. She's awesome. Um, and you know we're often on the same wavelength about things and I really trust her judgment as well so that makes a massive difference for me so I'm out and about doing stuff and speaking and you know all that stuff all the time and I couldn't do that if I didn't have someone who'd got my back um, and we communicate all the time about where things are at and what you know she needs the decisions from me and all that kind of stuff so she really uh, instrumental in kind of then filtering that out to everybody else um I think because it's still it's a, obviously a small business um and it's busy and it's growing um it's trying to get the right functions in place so like administrative functions and getting the right people for that and because those are the things that actually um cause me the most headaches it's not the therapy side of it or the training side of it um it's more about the actual kind of day-to-day function um of the business so you've got uh team members who do that for you yeah um but it's been that's that's bit's been quite tricky really because um it's getting somebody or people who understand what understand what we're trying to do but they're not therapists uh and often we take you know part of the office job is taking referrals from people who are in a probably (coughs) excuse me probably quite a bad spot um so it's not just your average picking up the phone Mm you know doing some administrative stuff you're doing your emails that kind of stuff it's also got that element to it so um that bit for me is a bit that i want to get as right as i can um and i have got some really good people doing that at the minute but it hasn't always been like that it's always like trial and error and mm, you haven't quite got the other skills and you, you can teach to a certain extent you can get train people to a certain extent but um empathy and compassion and those kinds of things you know they're a natural response aren't they yeah you you can't really teach empathy can you no no so those things are more difficult in a business like mine you know if you're just picking up the phone and taking taking queries about products that's very different so that's the bit for me so the therapy side of it the training side of it the cultural stuff we've got all the right people in the right places it's it's just that function really about you know the um the day-to-day communication and, and contact with people that um, is is a challenge. It's not at the minute because we've got some good people, but it has been. So when those things aren't working as well as I want them to, <laughs> um, that that makes life a lot more difficult because I'm not I'm not satisfied with the level of what we're offering. If you know what I mean. Not that anyone's ever said anything. We've never had any feedback about that, but I just know, and that's what I kind of base everything on. Really, it's that gut feeling. Yeah, I think the the gut is uh is what second brain. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Um, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs say, "Oh, yeah, it's just a gut feeling." Yeah. I just went with my gut, um, which is weird. It's a weird place to yeah listen to, but um, I don't know, heart, head, and gut. Yeah, I think. Do you know what I I've learned to do because I do have a gut feeling because I, I trust. I trust my responses to people because I have to as a therapist that's what I've always based everything on you know since I've been a therapist and actually leading people and managing people previous to that I did as well um probably just didn't know I was doing that 
but I think now I've I have a gut feeling about something and then I set I sit back and I think that's my more resilient way of managing things because it's not always spot on where it needs to be and sometimes I need my head to step in and go hang on a minute because I've got two sides I've got the therapist who sees things in a certain way and I've got a businesswoman who sees things in another way and I've got to be careful that I'm making decisions in the right place the right headspace if that yeah. makes sense because what the therapist would do would be quite different to what the businesswoman would do I guess the therapist is more compassionate yeah feelings and the, the businesswoman is a bit more not cutthroat but I no. guess quite strategic and yeah a lot more yeah, a lot more strategic and a lot more um, rash, not rational, because that's not it's not the other side isn't rational. Logical. It's more logical. Yeah. yeah, I have that same flip flop sometimes mm. with decisions. You know, I could go this way, and that, I can see why that would work or this way, and that would, and it normally that hap- that that kind of either or happens when it's some kind of human interaction, yeah. whether it's with staff or clients, or when it's a when it's almost a you know financial decision or um kind of non-human interaction then it's always it's much easier it's all just logical but i think that's that heart thing comes into it if yeah. you're dealing with another human it's yeah. there's a lot of other things that come into play it does and and whether it's a whether it's a customer or whether it's a um you know a member of staff i think on a human level if you're making a decision that you know directly impacts on that person and not necessarily in a positive way there's always going to be a dilemma if you you know what I mean because that's part of it but I think sometimes it's like actually you know what the right decision is based on what the business needs but it doesn't necessarily mean say it's a nice decision or one that you actually want to take yeah or even have that conversation so there's um I've heard in the past that uh, a lot of successful entrepreneurs they have been almost diagnosed with um being psychopaths mm. is that uh do you think that's there's something in that <laughs> there's a lot of people in politics <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well i think uh it's yeah oh, what's the name of that is it the psychopath test have you read that it's um what's the name of the, the journalist who wrote it um and it's quite interesting what he says in that about world leaders and you know people hyping businesses about that kind of um charming uh you know kind of can be quite manipulative and you know all those things and i think um i can definitely see that that kind of way of functioning um in like i say politics for definite um and it's really all about them not really about anybody else and i think in businesses as well you know big businesses you, you have to have a certain way of functioning to get to be in those positions i'm not saying everyone's in that position but there is you know that there is a way of thinking isn't there i think it's to get to that to get to that place mm. where you've got an awful lot of people working for you and things are worth a lot of money and um you know so maybe more of a coping mechanism than a yeah and i think i mean you know also people tend to put in uh as as you get bigger in organisations, people tend to put other people into positions of the things that they struggle to do, as yeah. well. You know, so if you struggle managing the people side of it, then people will have other people who do that, and you know that kind of thing. So it almost means that you don't have to engage with those things you find more difficult. I think the bigger you get, so 
I think there's an argument that there are probably more psychopaths in particular positions than we actually think, but there's also something to be said for people actually backfill with people who do the things that they don't want to do anymore. Yeah. Do you reckon Richard Branson's a psychopath or do you reckon he's, he's different? Because you've listed him as one of your favourite <laughs> business people. Do you know, the reason I like him is because uh, he, he liked the thing about saying yes. Yeah. There's certain things that, that I suppose I would do naturally that he he's like, this is how I've done that. And I think, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. I really relate to that. Um, I don't know if also some of it's about him being dyslexic because I think, you know, it does change the way you approach things and where you think about things. Um, and I like the way that I like the way he takes risks. I mean, he takes over the years has taken huge risks, lost a lot of money and then gets back up and has another go in a different way or, you know, changes the business or revolves it or whatever. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, that admiration about that resilience and getting back up and trying again and things that he's kind of, uh, flown by the seat of his pants on i would literally just be in a hole somewhere <laughs> going somebody needs to sort this out <laughs> yeah know, he's uh he holds his nerve amazingly oh, I don't, yeah he's very lucky as well mm. i think he's looked out in a number of areas yeah. um but you know he's he's he's, he's done well for himself yeah yeah he, uh, yeah absolutely we all like to have some of that but um yeah, and again, you only see what you 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 know what's in the books, what's on the podcasts, or what's on the social media, and all of that's kind of orchestrated to look a certain way anyway. So, yeah, there's there's a kind of a Branson brand. Now. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, you you kind of I'm a big reader. Okay. Um, do you read many books? Um, when I get time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Headspace. Yeah. Um, you kind of gave me a book. Uh, so Maverick. Yeah. Exclamation mark. <laughs> Uh, Ricardo Semler. Yes. So what's so, that about? Years ago, uh, I did a business and finance HND. Um, my uh, mum insisted that I went to college whilst I worked in the family business, so I had some kind of qualification, so I didn't go to uni till later. Um, and one of the books that we were asked to read was was Maverick. And uh, Ricardo Semler um, worked in his father's company and uh, in Brazil. Um, and he couldn't fit in with the way that it was being run and actually made you know over a period of however many years made loads of changes and um quite innovative things so he would have um eventually had almost like satellite teams it was a production company so he'd have satellite teams who could manage their own hours um they could come into work when you know as a team and produce um and they were they started to kind of smash the targets because people were engaged because they had a sense of control and influence over what they were doing. Um, he came into his uh, business one day and uh, his office had been moved. <laughs> no one had told him because people felt that that was something they could do, that that doesn't work for us anymore. So therefore you're now over here. And, you know, so, it, and, and I, I remember reading it. I was only in my early twenties and thinking, bloody hell, that sounds amazing you know that actually he isn't going by any norms or any rules or any he's actually kind of going well let's let's do that and let's see what happens and um and then some of the people that some of these teams were set up in these satellite businesses uh, satellite uh, teams if you like were then became their own businesses and then they would um buy in those services and it just 
to me was just a quite mind-blowing at that point of actually there is a totally different way of being able to approach things and I think it was quite um I don't know quite instrumental in me thinking about things in a different way it was part of the operations management uh, module or something I was doing and um, it was a young tutor she was quite um different herself she had lots of different ways of thinking about things and recommended this book and I went off and read it it was the first business book I'd ever read um and it gave but it gave me inspiration and gave me lots of ideas and it's one of those that um you know my brother's got his own business in London and I and I years ago I said to me need to read that book because I mean now I think if I read it again now I'd be like that's quite simplistic and you know what I mean because it but at the time it was just very different and nobody was really thinking about things in that way of how to empower people in an organization and how to give them control and let them feed back into the business and to actually feel that they were um, an instrumental part of it and valued within it because that just wasn't how businesses were being run at the time. No, I can imagine not. Um, it sounds like a good book. Mm. How old is it? I don't know, probably. Okay. I'm not telling you because yeah. it's giving away my age. <laughs> I'll find it. Find <laughs> yeah. it on Amazon. You'll be reading it. Like, this is crap. <laughs> yeah. No, some of the best books are the old ones. I mean, um, you know, they're bestsellers for a reason. Mm. Multiple bestsellers, and because mm. you know the content is usually transferable from generation to generation. Mm. Um, He's written another one about um, which I haven't read. I have got it. Um, and that's about, you know, a seven day working week in that basically uh, now we can work anywhere at any time. And we we have this kind of mentality about nine to five, but working in a way that fits for your family and fits for, you know, what you're doing and what fits for your business rather than feeling that it's got to be these set hours and things. It's just again, it's just a different way of viewing things. Yeah, we we had we dabbled with mm. a little bit of um, I read some books on four day working weeks. Mm. And said to the team, "Oh, would you like to try this?" And of course they were, like, "Yeah, of course we <laughs> yeah, want to why try." Why wouldn't we? <laughs> and we said, "Okay, well, the kind of stipulations are: we're still going to do the same number of hours because mm. we can't just afford to do like a fifth less work. No, that would just it, that's not going to work. No. So we'll still do the same number of hours, but we'll do, cram it into four days. Um, so when you work out the math, it's only like an extra hour and a half a day, I think." Um, and then we had some logistical issues with, okay, well, we still need to service clients Monday to Friday because they want to you know, be able to contact us. So some people have to do Monday to Thursday and some people do Tuesday to Friday. Now, mm. who wants which one? And so one of the guys went, oh, I'll do, uh, I'll have the Monday off, like straight in there. I'll do the Fridays. And everyone else was like, oh, okay. So I think we had two people doing the Monday shift and most of the other people doing the, fr- uh, having the Fridays off. Yeah. And then it soon became apparent, God, Mondays are way worse uh, no, sorry, working on a Friday is way worse than working on a Monday because on a Friday, obviously, like it's the end of the week. Yeah. Your friends are out going yeah. to the pub. But if you're on a Friday working longer hours, you don't finish till half six. Yeah. It was like, okay, I've made the wrong choice. I want to switch. <laughs> Will anyone switch with me? And yeah, we kind of got a bit, it kind of worked. I think it was one of those experiments where it may have worked if we were further along in the path than we were we just yeah. weren't organized enough to do that no um and i think also it, it helps if you're in a, a a cultural um environment where a lot of your other peers and your friends also have something similar so i can imagine it working in silicon valley where yeah, a lot yeah. of people might work at in similar businesses with similar things going on mm. and they can all say oh yeah friday i'm off friday yeah we'll go we'll do this thing whereas mm. if 
you know um the staff here were like well i have fridays off but all my friends are working so yeah. i just kind of sit around the house doing nothing yeah so i think it's you sometimes need a wider cultural change yes. for it to really work and i don't think the uk is no. at the forefront of that no I, no i mean when i go on holiday and people are having you know a longer lunch time or the kind of siestas and all that kind of stuff and i think and, and the pace of life is different and i think bloody hell we've got it wrong i think we've got it wrong i think the Scandinavian companies are, are the ones that are kind of leading that at the minute mm. in terms of their wellness, well-being. Um, I l- went to Oslo recently and on the plane was reading an article in, mm. in I, I mean, I don't usually read in-flight magazines, but this one caught my eye. Mm. And yeah, p- the things they're doing and and um, again, it's not, it's common sense stuff, but it just seems to be mm. a lot of the companies there are doing it. So yes. they're all buying in. It almost becomes accepted and expected that, well, if you work in a, any company there, they do these things. Mm. Um, and they've, it's all very much, you know, they're geared about family and the work-life balance and stuff. Mm. Whereas you look at America, mm. maybe Silicon Valley is different, but I know I've spoken to a lot of American friends and they're like, you get four weeks holiday a year. Yeah, It's like two weeks for us is like considered generous. Yeah. And we're, you know, we've got to work at all these hours. and It's interesting, very, isn't it? Culturally, how people approach that. And yeah, and... and you know it's who it's trying to find that balance and work-life balance you know when you said about forces it that for me is really important you know that other people that people don't feel like they've got to work 12 hour days <laughs> i might have to sometimes but they don't and in the in i think culturally in other, in, in like those areas you just said you've got you've already got very different ideas about work-life balance and what's important and you know um scandinavian kind of culture and American culture, they're very, very opposite, aren't they? Just in terms of how even the people are, never mind how they're managing their businesses. Yeah, I haven't met any business owners from Scandinavia yet. I met lots of drunk <laughs> Scandinavians, um, Not, Norwegians. You can't go with that. But uh, yeah, a few, I've, I, I'd, I'd really be interested to do a bit of traveling and, and f- go into businesses and almost, you know, Mm. shadow them yeah. see how they observe do observe what's happening yeah because mm. uh, you know not all these businesses are writing books no um so there's probably some really really cool ideas and things that are going on that we just don't know about yet mm. um we've done two hours have we yeah we smashed two hours um <laughs> Bloody hell, that went fast the only other question i've got for you because you just mentioned there that you know your staff are you know they don't have to work 12 hour days mm. but you know sometimes you do mm. How do you, as the business owner, manage work-life balance? You said you've got three children, mm. husband. Mm. Dog. Dog. <laughs> three businesses. Yeah. How do you manage that balance yourself? Um, sometimes I manage it better than others. Um, I It depends on how busy we are and what's going on. But I, I go, you know, I put things in place. Like I go to the gym. I make sure I eat well. You know, all those kinds of things. Um, and... We make sure that as a family, we factor time in. So, you know, we might not be able to sit down because my husband works um, out of town as well. He works in Leicester in London. So, you know, between us, we're constantly like, where are you tomorrow? <laughs> Who's doing that for that child? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have that, We you know, we have to kind of have conversations about covering. Um, you know, I've got three children at three different schools and bus, buses to get them to and all sorts of stuff. So it's... it. it it's almost a way of life of making sure we've kind of covered all of those bases and then factoring in time for us as a family. So we have treat night. Uh, so Saturday night is treat night. So we 
uh, argue over what film we're going to watch because they're all different ages. Um, we put a film on, you know, we have some treats and we all have a cuddle and that's, you know, and it's all that stuff about that contact with each other. We have family meals a couple of times a week in the evening um, and communication is really important as well. So, you know, as my children have got older and they've got mobile phones and things like that, they'll ring me and ask me things. And so the, sometimes the balance is better than at others. Um, and that's why, you know, when, when you start a business, it is about a family commitment really, because there are times when, I mean, I don't miss anything. I'm always there when they need me to be there. Um, and things happening at school, I'm always there, but there are times when, you know, I'm out a lot in the day or, um, I'm setting off early somewhere or my husband is and we're having to manage it between us. But if I didn't have my husband working in the way that he does, so we we're a team, so, we, you know, we, we, we have those responsibilities between us. It isn't like I'm the, the wife, so therefore I have to take charge of this, this and this and he does that bit. It's like, right, we, we have this to do. Who's going to do that? Can you get that on the way home and how? So it's busy. Um, and I sometimes question about what we're teaching the children in terms of work ethic. Um, but it's also fun. And we make sure we always have a, you know, in the school holidays on, we always have a holiday, we always have a break. Um, we go and do something where we all just kind of land and have time together and, you know, everything just kind of comes back down again. Um, and and be conscious of that. It's really about being conscious of what are we doing? Who are we losing kind of a bit of, t- losing touch with, if you like? Um, spending time with friends and you know, I train, I go to the gym with my friend as well. So, you know, she invariably gets me going, ah, this happened and I can't believe it, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, this is going great. Um, and it's it's factoring all those things in my family, my mum and dad, I've got brother and sister, you know, we're all in contact and things. So, like I say, sometimes it's really balanced and we're home a lot more and, you know, but the, you take the rough with the smooth. I think if I was employed, I'd expect to be home by half five. I'm not. Um, the business you know being able to grow and develop is relying on me making sure that I'm thinking about six months in in the future all the time um so there's going to be times when that isn't as good but like I say I can have holidays and I can take time off when they're on holiday and um we have great support from parents as well. My mum and dad help and Matt's mum and dad help and, you know. Free babysitters are always good. Well, they have a day. They have their day where they pick the children up. And so I know Tuesday, Wednesday, if I need to work late, it's all covered. Yeah. You know, and that's great because the kids are having a great time with them and spending time with the, their grandparents and they don't even, they're not remotely interested in where I am or what I'm doing because they're busy. Um, so that gives me room to breathe. Um, if I need to do something later on, then I can do it on those days. Yeah. So it's just it's it's really having the structure in place. I, I if I was living somewhere else and didn't have any family support, it would be really difficult. Yeah, we've only got one child, and it's difficult. I don't mm. know how you do it with three. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite self sufficient. <laughs> so. Um, Thank you very much. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic. There's lots of quest- personal questions and things <laughs> I wanted to know that I managed to get answers to, so that's great. Um, where can people check out more about you and Fortis Therapy? And the, yeah, so we've got uh, the website, fortistherapy.co.uk. Um, we're on all the social media platforms and uh, linking in with me on, you know, uh, on LinkedIn as well uh, would be great. So yeah, anyone can get hold of us that way. 
Super, right, I'll go let you write this proposal now. <laughs> yes, thank it's you. Pretty late, but yeah, good luck with that <laughs> thank one. Thank you. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you.